Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Z Prime on the Grid. I'm Dylan Lockwood. Joining me is my co-host, Joyce Dooley. Joyce, how are you doing today? Hey, hey, Dylan. Doing great. How are you? Doing pretty good. Uh, we've also got on the show with us today, CEO of Octopus Energy US, Michael Lee. Welcome to the program. How are you doing? Hey, Dylan. Hey, Joyce. Good to be here. Excited to be here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your company and your own journey in Texas Energy Retail? Yeah, uh, happy to do so. So <clears throat> I actually started my journey with uh, my own company, my own startup, Evolve Energy. I started that company about two years ago. We had a specialized product. It was a wholesale pass-through product. So we, we tracked to the broader wholesale market and helped customers manage their usage during the power price spikes um, to get them to a much lower cost and much lower carbon total product. And I sold my company to Octopus Energy and joined that uh, family in fall of last year. And I'll tell you what, it's been uh, a thrill ever since. There's been quite an alignment of values and vision for what we're building and what we're doing. Uh, and the, the high level is that Octopus Energy is a five-year-old startup, five-year-old company. I guess a little more than a startup. <laughs> it's a five-year-old company. So I guess it's a little more than a startup. We have 2 million customers globally. Uh, so to get from zero to 2 million is quite the accomplishment, especially given that it's competitive markets. And so people opted in to choose working with Octopus as their supplier. And uh, here in the US, I lead the US operations. Texas is our first market, and we're really excited about where else we'll be launching into in the next few months. That is really exciting. Congratulations. What a transformation. And, you know, startup life is hard, but way to go. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you've been dealing in the renewable energy then for over a decade. Uh, what, what does that business model look like to you? And do you see more third party providers pivoting to that kind of model moving forward? Yeah, so a little bit about my background. I've been on the IPP side of the industry, the power plant side of the industry for the past, uh, or I guess, eight of the past 10 years really focusing on bringing on both utility scale and even DG assets. Um, and really, historically, the fundamental pain point has been how do we find pools of capital uh, that are low cost and deep to bring on many, many new projects, given how capital intensive renewable energy is. And we've just seen a transformation where that piece of the industry has significantly matured over the past few years, where uh, hundreds of megawatts want to come online, sorry, 100 gigawatts want to come online and truly transform the grid. And so really it's less about finding pools of capital to do that. And actually it's more about the second order of effects. And it's thinking about now that we have these time periods where renewable energy wants to produce, uh, very windy days, very sunny hours, how do we enable uh, no kilowatt hour to be left behind? Right. What we've seen is that because we've been so focused on putting new megawatts onto the grid, we have many hours of the days in saturated places like California and Texas where prices go negative. And when that happens, we aren't utilizing these expensive uh, and, and very incredible power plants to their maximum potential. And so really the next order of effects is how can load serving entities, whether those are competitive retailers, munis, co-ops, or 
IOUs really help their customers absorb as much of the low cost power as possible and shedding load during the least efficient times of the day when power prices and carbon signals are the highest. So that's that's really what we built and that's really kind of the vision of Octopus is enabling this energy transition, enabling people to get the lowest price possible by extracting the most renewable energy on the grid and dynamically uh, reducing their usage during the times when we see the most carbon and expensive assets on the grid. And that kind of just like, for me, kind of brings into some of the things that happened down here um, in Texas in February, right? So the the trends that you mentioned. Um, so because of the winter storms, we've had a lot of people reassessing how the Texas grid functions. Do you see your role changing um, or is it reaffirmed after that event? Yeah, the Texas event, in February was really difficult. First, fundamentally for our customers and our employees. It's really scary to go through such an extreme weather event and not have basic electricity needs and basic natural gas needs. You know, we often talk about how natural gas is uh, a resilient fuel, but really that was the one that underperformed. That's, that's why we had to bring down power plants is because we did not have access to the kind of pressure that we needed in, in the lines. And, and even within real resiliency within buildings, you oftentimes see setups that are conditioned upon having electricity on in order to get the furnace on. So we what we really kind of imagine going forward is kind of less dependency on one single fuel type and enabling customers to have a bit of self-reliance you know there's uh, elements of solar and storage at the individual building level that get really interesting and ha having customers um, build resiliency from that uh, but i think it's also about ensuring that generation becomes more localized and ensuring that um, we're able to get modular uh, assets such as solar um, closer to load zones that really enables resiliency throughout pockets. So that way we have a diversity of not just fuel types, but also where the electricity is coming from and making sure that it's aligned to where it's being used. How did that affect the way you viewed your business in the Texas ecosystem? Yeah, look, so we are a retailer in Texas. We sell 100% renewable energy to our customers, and we're really kind of looking to take that to the next level as we uh, recently announced that we have kind of started the phase of becoming a gen tailor. We have acquired um, globally a large portfolio of renewable energy assets. And so having a diversified kind of portfolio of renewable energy assets to serve customers has kind of been brought to the forefront uh, from that type of event. Um, but I think more importantly, I think what we see from resilience is that, yes, while it is good to winterize the grid, the reality is that the most resilient future for our customers is one in which they are agile, one in which they can adapt to a lot of different situations. Because the problems of the grid of the future won't necessarily look exactly like the problems that we had in February, right? They'll have similar notes to it, but the music will be slightly different. And so we can't necessarily solve future problems by trying to solve past problems. 
But what we can do is enable our customers to have the right tools to, uh, you know, one, be a little bit more self-generating if, if that's an option for them. Two, more importantly, help them control devices, help them understand how much to use and when. And when we went through this event, we actually probably could have dealt with it as a broader community had everyone had the right kind of communications about what level to set their thermostat. We could have reduced demand uh, by about 20%, maybe more, and that would have enabled many more people to have their lights on during this event. Uh, it might have been a little bit colder, but having these controls technologies, communication platforms, I think is a really important piece to ensuring resilience in the future. And so as we think about Octopus and our future in Texas and, and other states, it's that as we get ready for climate change, we need to enable uh, both ourselves as a load serving entity to be highly adaptable to changing situations, especially ones that we might not have uh, forecasted, as well as having really simple and clean communication uh, channels with our customer to help them maximize uh, their success through any type of predicted or unpredicted events. And so I think a lot of companies should be looking at themselves and saying, how do we become a technology company? How do we become a world-class company that does more than just sell electrons? So did you, sorry, just in terms of the communications aspect, do you, did you, do you see the problem as a lack of investment in communications technology or a lack of cohesive communication strategy or, or, or maybe a mix of both? I think it's both. I think right now we've engineered a system that encourages lack of communication. We have engineered, we as in the broader energy industry, we have engineered a system where we sell a product to our customers. We don't encourage them to interact with it from a communication standpoint until maybe once, which is call it 30 to 45 days after we sell that product to them and we give them a bill. And we don't really give them much options besides pay the bill. And I can't imagine going into my local coffee shop, buying a coffee, every day for a month and then getting a bill at the end of the month for all the coffees I bought that month. That's just not a very collaborative relationship. And so enabling, uh, you know, methods for which one customers should care and secondly, the technology stack to easily care. And so a piece of this is connecting prices to end use behavior and creating, you know, smart rates that are automatically helping customers reduce usage during peak times of the grid, give customers a reason to occasionally interact with us. It gives them a financial incentive. It gives them a benefit. And by building that relationship, we start be becoming a partner. We build trust. We build value that is more discreet than just serving a commodity and sending a bill. But it's in fact a day-to-day -day relationship that helps customers understand what their goals are and helps solving for those goals. So I think it is both a business model issue within the industry, as well as a uh, lack of technology platforms that have been built around primarily putting the customer first. Um, and I think both of those will need to change if we want to do this energy transition correctly. That's interesting the, the way you, the way you framed that to put, you know, the customer journey as inexorably tied to reliability, which I haven't actually, um, 
thought about it in, the, in that in that way before. I mean, customer centricity and reliability, of course, that that that, that goes hand in hand. But the actual like idea of a idea of you know communicate that communication strategy and and the, the the notion of the customer journey being also central to operational uh, goals is is definitely worth thinking about. Um, so you know, kind of in that vein, you know, from your from your perspective uh, as a you know as an entrepreneur, someone who made someone who made a startup and is now running you know U- U.S. operations uh, for Octopus Energy. What are uh, you know where are some of the biggest opportunities for people like you or maybe strategically minded utilities to uh, make a difference in, in the in the Texas grid? Yeah, so a bit more about our thesis and a bit more about our culture, and that'll kind of enable that question to be answered. Is that our number one metric in our company? Our very first metric is customer satisfaction score. NPS, net promoter score. We measure that all the time, every interaction, positive interaction, negative interaction. We want to be able to answer the phone within two minutes, and we want to be able to get that customer to whatever result that they think is best. And we give our end-line operators a lot of autonomy to figure out the right solution. So having that as our number one metric, you kind of solve what you measure for. And we're really proud that with 2 million customers that we're servicing, our MPS score is in line with some of the best brands in Silicon Valley, call it Netflix, Apple, and so forth. That's, that's kind of unheard of in this energy industry. So I think what that enables us to do is then take that relationship to the next level, which is needed in the energy transition. The energy transition is not about selling kilowatt hours. The energy transition is about partnering and trust. And you need to first build that partnership and trust. And so a big piece of that is, are you able to do the right things for your customers? Do they trust you? And when you have that, then helping them manage devices, helping them manage their electric vehicles, whether that's charging or even innovatively, occasionally selling back to the grid when the grid is really, really strained, all of that takes trust. There is no way to do the innovation without first and foremost trust. And having that incentive alignment very transparent with the customer. And so I think when I think about giving advice to new entrepreneurs, when I think about giving advice to uh, people who are really interested in enabling the energy transition within their own load serving entity, it's about how do you recreate an environment that enables trust to be the foundation of your relationship with the customer? And it's not because the regulator told you to, but it's because you know it's the right thing to do. And once that happens, then the things that we can do with customers to accelerate the energy transition is just infinite. And so uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity for entrepreneurs to come in and build the right kind of tools that help various load serving entities connect these dots on a very automated fashion. And we've seen that disruption in other industries. When you look at, for example, the taxi industry, that historically was a low trust environment. People interact with Uber because they know that when they push the button, the car shows up in two minutes. They know what the cost is gonna be. They know what the experience is gonna be. There's, it's, it's, a, it's a model that's very different and it's very decentralized. There's no central coordinator. And it's all because it's based on trust. So I get really excited about um, what, entrepreneurs can build for other load serving entities to enable them to take their organizations to the next level. 
You know, we occasionally have a handful of startup companies that come onto the show and talk about, you know, their experiences. And for all the positives, you know, it is a journey and it's quite the accomplishment, you know, that you've gone through. Could you maybe speak uh, a little bit to some of the challenges that you had to overcome in order to get to this position and have the amount of impact that you've had? Yeah, I always like to say everyone should be entrepreneurial, but not everyone should be an entrepreneur. Um, <laughs> it is hard to be an entrepreneur and you have to make sure that you're in a, a life situation that is acceptable for that type of lifestyle. You have to make sure that you have the right coaches and advisors. Um, and in this industry, a technical industry, it's pretty also, it's pretty important to have at least some type of industry perspective. It doesn't have to be that you are a veteran for 30 years, although that's always great. Um, but having some type of perspective about how things work really kind of helps build credibility to kind of moving that momentum. And then finally, the, the last kind of piece I always like to mention is ha have a vision, have a vision for where the world should go and then understand what are the right stepping stones to get there. And you're not gonna be able to recreate the world overnight, that doesn't happen. Um, but understand what are ways, what are the incremental sources of value that a startup can focus on that a customer is willing to pay for, whoever their customers are, whether that's an end use customers like ours are, um, you know, whether it's a uh, utility that's going to buy the product, find, find something that is a pain point for that individual or is highly underserved in the market and through data, you, you feel that it's a very strong case that they would be willing to pay for a different product that brought them a unique value proposition and test it, bring it to the market, test it, grow it incrementally. Um, I see a lot of entrepreneurs trying to uh, get to the final product before they've even exited the beta phase. And so I, I get the passion. I understand that engineering passion that we have in this industry uh, to build the perfect mousetrap before you launch it and reveal it. But there's also an element of just getting to market and trying it and getting feedback and getting iterations. And that's really, really important uh, to not lose that early momentum in this, in this market. Excellent. Thank you. Um, to shift gears a little bit, you know, talking about revenue models and, and pricing and structure and stuff like that, how, you know, with all of your experience, how do you think that we should demystify the economics of sustainable energy so we can move forward with them? The super simple way to think about it is that renewable energy is extremely cheap and it has compounding effects that when solar and wind is producing, the willingness for those assets to take a very low price is even greater. So, method of decarbonization and saving money for people is one in which the future grid and the way we interact with the grid will be different than the past. And so as we think about decarbonization going forward, we need to think beyond just how do we get more megawatts onto the grid? Because we've seen that while those mandates work, they have their limitations to them. I don't know if anyone would be willing, for example, to build an additional solar project in California, given how many times a year those projects are curtailed and the limited amount of times that they're able actually to produce on the grid. So it's less about building more megawatts, although we want to do that, 
And it's more about re-envisioning the supply side and having the power uh, come from the demand side, meaning the demand side gets to choose when and how is the cheapest times and truly optimize their usage. And sure, right now, that may be a bit limited to connected thermostats, which by the way, in a place like Texas is 80 or 90% of a residential load. So it's a great product to sync to a, a price signal. But as we really aggressively launch electric vehicles with the infrastructure package that President Biden is pursuing and uh, batteries and solar, it's more about how do we elegantly optimize when and how electricity is being used. And those people who can do it the best and partner with companies that have the best algorithms and controls platforms will have the lowest prices. And you know, manufacturing plants that have the least amount of flexibility, they, they may have the highest prices. And we're kind of moving to a world where uh, potentially residential prices in some cases could be a lot cheaper than industrial prices because it's less about how much volume you buy and it's more about how much flexibility you can provide. And I think in the world of the residential side, we're gonna see a lot more flexibility automatically come on through the grid as people get their next vehicle, get their next washer dryer, you know, think about getting a solar and storage provide, uh, asset at their house. And I think that there's gonna be a reimagining of what does a low cost customer look like and what does a high cost customer look like? And I think it's gonna be less about how much they buy because solar is module up, very module. A one megawatt facility kind of costs the same amount as a 300 megawatt facility. So it's less about the volume you can provide on the grid from a consumption standpoint and more about the flexibility you can provide. So with the flexibility and the mindset, um, shift that needs to occur. Do you think that utilities are really ready for that kind of relationship? Or, you know, maybe you could speak a little bit more on that. You know, they have all the tools that they need to be successful if they choose that they want to be successful. We spent a lot of money over the past 10 years installing smart meters in many facilities. So we have the ability to understand how customers use electricity and build them based on their actual consumption patterns. And we can sync that up to real-time market dynamics on a 15-minute or half-hour or hourly basis. We have the right infrastructure in place to be really successful in doing this. And it's more about understanding that the future of this industry is a lot more about that customer service and flexibility piece and less about providing kilowatt hours. And I think at that point, then it's a cultural piece. It's um, a piece of that question is how comfortable is each organization with technology? And the reality is that we've seen technology infiltrate every single industry and it's only accelerating. I can't think of that many industries um, outside of energy that have such a lack of infiltration of technology throughout the supply chain. 
And so it's at the door and the technology stacks are there. And actually they're very low cost now because of cloud hosted technologies. For us as a load serving entity, the way that we've gotten comfortable with it is that we have world-class software engineers on our team. And what we're really at is a point where talent wants to put their time and attention to things that matter. And so utilities are at a very interesting place where as they redefine their culture and their vision, they can, just like us, attract some of the best software technologists out there. Uh, we license our software because a lot of people uh, want to be able to get access to our tools without having to rebuild them our, themselves. And by definition, we're five years ahead of anyone who's starting from scratch. But the reality is that these tools, whether it's from our organization, which we call Kraken, or from other organizations, they're no longer going to be patchworks of systems. That doesn't work. There's so much friction. A, a world-class technology company has vertical integration from wholesale markets to metering to device management and with machine learning tools integrated at every single piece of that, that stack. And that's what we have and that's where the industry needs to go and that's exactly where it's going. We, we have 20 million customers on our, on our products. So we see the momentum already just in five years. And as, as utilities, especially here in the US, start reimagining their future, they see the renewable energy wanting to come onto the grid. They see it's the most cost-effective method from a PPA standpoint or LCOE standpoint. And these types of tools are exactly what's needed to maximally extract cost savings for their customers. We kind of touched on some elements for this, the final question, which, you know, is other than culture and some of the things that you mentioned, what are the most important areas for Texas utilities to modernize? Well, I don't think it's confined just to Texas utilities, but we can kind of focus on them a little bit. I think, you know, the, the structure in Texas is a little bit different. The, the majority of Texans have a uh, choice on the deregulated side, and then there are munis and co-ops that service quite a bit of customers as well. And then more broadly throughout the US, it's more vertically integrated. And so I think the number one thing besides culture from getting used to technology, it's also kind of culture from the sense of getting comfortable with taking risk. For example, we run experiments all the time. And as a deregulated retailer, we get to think of a new product, think of a new rate, and go to market with it within 24 hours. And if we see that it's attractive and customers are opting into it, then we continue working on it. If we see that it's something that doesn't build value for our customers, then we stop working on it. And these aren't necessarily rates in the abstract of, well, should we charge nine cents versus 10 cents? I think that's kind of the classic way of thinking of rates for retailers. For us, it's about, hey, is there a special program we can do for customers with electric vehicles? How would we price this? What's a great product to encourage more electric vehicles to come online? Or same thing with batteries and storage. And so it's about thinking about using rates as a tool to enable customers to be really successful in buying devices, buying connected assets that are controllable and build resiliency on the grid. Um, 
And the way to do that is that we, the reality is that we don't have all the answers today. Nobody has the answers. That's the part of innovation. So the part, the way to do innovation is through tests and experiments. And we need to work with utilities as well as regulators to encourage more experiments to operate faster. And uh, that way we have more repetitions. Like the reality is that regulated entities will never be able to experiment as fast as deregulated retailers. But the nice thing is, is that we can run the experiments here as a deregulated retailer, understand what are the controls, technologies that are required for that product to be successful, what are the communications for that customer to be successful, and what's the way to kind of uniquely price that product throughout the day or throughout the year for that product to be successful. And we can, we can creatively do that and run that experiment, and then we can help other partners of ours that license that technology to get that learning quickly. They get to learn from our experiments. It's not like we're designing these products in a silo. We get to uh, you know, replicate those products for other customers. So that way it's more about testing on us and then they can um, find what's successful to work in their, in their divisions. So what, what, what tend to be the genesis of those experiments? Is it like, is it come from customers like, hey, I've got an electric vehicle. Do you offer any programs? Does it come from like a software engineer who's like, I want to, you know, run an experiment on this to see if we can sell it? Does someone commission it? How, how does that how does that come about? How do you decide where to where to focus your energy? Resources? All of the above. These are you had a lot of great options there. And yes, all of the above. I think the most important one out of all of those is customers. Because as the CEO of Octopus Energy US, I have no clue exactly what every single one of my customers want. In fact, the people who know what they want the best are the people who are working with them every single day. The operations team, the marketing team, what resonates with them, what doesn't, what questions they have, what feedback they have, what suggestions they have. They, they have the pulse of the company so much better than sometimes any executive does. So it's one, how do we enable those people who are closely connected to our customers to hear the feedback and suggest modifications quickly? And then secondly, how do we de-layer the organization? There's really only a couple layers in our organization. And you know, I proudly sit very close to our operations team. The global CEO, Greg, sits within 15 feet of our customer service team. Like having that feedback of knowing what customers are asking about um, allows us to quickly think about what's a new feature we can add, what's a better way to message this product. Because it's not in our interest either to have a confusing message out there. If we get a lot of questions about something that we've structured, then it's in our interest to more clearly communicate it at the beginning to reduce the amount of inbound questions that we have on our end. So. It's, it's about having a, uh, it's, it's really a technology and agility-based culture steeped within the organization and having agency and trust within your team to enable them to suggest and feel confident about suggesting new products that will make their customers successful. While what I'm proposing may sound scary, it also needs to happen. There's no other choice. If we care about the future for our planet, if we care about the future for our children, there's really no other choice but to decarbonize as fast as possible 
And the really the only way to do that is to add as much flexibility into the system. And yes, transmission is going to be a big piece of that. Batteries are a big piece of that, but batteries are just a hardware form of flexibility. And if we have a software form of flexibility, that's a lot cheaper. So how do we have all three of these types of resiliency assets to back up what are becoming less dispatchable supply side generation? And while that sounds like a major modification to turn the supply stack and invert it, it also is the only pathway forward. And every day that we delay doing this is another day that it's harder to answer the question to our kids and grandkids when they ask us, what did you do to prevent climate change? And when the answer is, well, we went through 10 years of stakeholder meetings and then we did a pilot, that's not a very good answer. What we need is uh, individuals to be bold and demonstrate leadership in organizations and to take steps that may feel uncomfortable, but knowing that they have good partners, whether it's other load serving entities or technology partners that have their interests in mind to succeed in this transition. And when that happens, there's a lot that we can do really quickly. Well said, uh, Michael, thank you for joining us today and for uh, talking about innovation in a rapidly, but perhaps not rapidly enough evolving utility landscape. Great. Awesome to be here, Dylan and Joyce. Enjoyed the conversation. Thanks. And uh, Joyce, thanks for being, being here uh, to be a part of this conversation. As always, thank you guys. And for the rest of you, you can find our research and media at zprime.com. You can find us on social media at dylockwood at jedooley at zprime underscore research. My name is Dylan, and we'll see you all next time.